Turn to Acts 22. We've been preaching through Peter, and one of the things that is a theme that I have preached on several times in Peter is that of having a good conscience or or a clear conscience, a clean conscience. And so I'm taking a break from Peter this morning to preach another sermon on having a clean conscience. As if there wasn't enough in the book of Peter. But there's, there's something else that we see in Acts that I think will be helpful to us and strengthening to us as we answer the question, what does it mean to have a clean conscience? How can I have a clean, a good conscience before God. Now, let me give you some background what's going on in Acts. We're going to be at the very end of 22 and into the beginning of chapter 23. In chapter 21, the Apostle Paul had been in the temple attempting to show the Jewish Christians that he wasn't such a bad guy after all. You might remember that he did not convince them. Some Jews from Asia recognized Paul. And assuming that he had brought a Gentile into the temple, they started a riot and tried to kill him. At that point, the Roman commander rescued Paul by arresting him. This is not the only time in history that people have been rescued by being arrested. And if you remind me after the service, I'll tell you the story of a missionary that that happened to in Ethiopia. It's a fun little, fun little turn of events, though, when you get saved by being arrested, isn't it? At that point, Paul convinced the commander to let him speak to the people. And Paul starts off by telling them his story. So, kind of like Stephen's sermon that we just read, goes way back in time and and tells a whole history before getting to the real center point of the sermon. Paul goes back, and he doesn't go back and tell the whole history of Israel, but he goes back and tells his story. And as he tells them his story, they quiet down until, just like with Stephen, he gets to the, the one part that really makes them angry. In this case, it was his statement that God said he was going to send the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles. Remember, him bringing a Gentile into the temple, supposedly, was what caused them to riot in the first place. There is some deep-seated animosity to Gentiles among the Jews. All right? Deep-seated. It's kind of like if you were to go into the middle of a Black Lives Matter campaign and say, white lives matter. 
There would not be, you should not expect for there to be either, a, uh, you know, happy, cheerful response to that. And yet at some level, Paul, who is not an idiot, knows that that's a likely response, but also knows that it is precisely what they need to hear. That God said he was going to send Paul to the Gentiles. And why? Well, now it gets even more personal. Because the Jews wouldn't listen. That's why God was going to send him to the Gentiles. At that point, the people started rioting again. And the commander brought Paul into the barracks and was about to have him whipped. But Paul made use of his Roman citizenship to end that idea. And then it says... In Acts 22, verse 30, But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he, the Roman commander, released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, this is the first time that we know of that Paul has seen the Jewish council since chapter 8. And a lot of history has happened from chapter 8 of Acts to chapter 22 of Acts. Time has passed. At that time, Paul had been sent out to persecute the Christians by the high priest. and to arrest the Christians in cities outside Jerusalem. It's possible that Paul had seen the council since then, but we don't have any record of it in Acts. And you think about what a dramatic change that is, having been sent out as a persecutor of the Christians, to now being before them put on trial for teaching the Christian faith, it's quite, quite a 180, isn't it? That's the context. Now, Paul starts his defense, and he gets only one sentence out before he's interrupted. That sentence is the one we'll focus on, and he claims that he has a clear conscience. And this is something that he says later, both in Acts while on trial and in a couple of the New Testament letters. Paul says he has a clear conscience. What does it mean to have a clear, good conscience? It's obviously something good. It's obviously something we should want. But why? Can it... Is it even possible for us to have a clear conscience today? Those are the questions we're going to answer. So please stand for the reading of God's word from Acts 22, 
starting in verse 30. As we already read, but on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Paul, looking at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. What does Paul mean when he says, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day? It's a bodacious claim. It's a shocking sentence. There's a reason that the high priest orders him to be struck. As a matter of fact, I would say that among the religious leaders of today that we consider most trustworthy, which is precisely who you would be talking about gathering the council together. Okay, These are the religious leaders that are most trusted. I think if we were to pick from uh, within this body, not from within, but if this body were to pick the people that we thought were most trustworthy, you'd end up with a bunch of men who were quite reformed, right? Calvinistic. And if we were to have them sit in trial and the first words out of a man's mouth were, I have lived my life with a perfectly clear conscience up to this day, a number of them, including myself, might be inclined to smack him in the face. Because it sounds like crazy talk when you know that the doctrine of original sin is true. When you know that total depravity is real and afflicts every man. And then you have a man say, I have lived my life with a perfectly clear conscience. Is it not a little bit, I don't know, frustrating, shocking, maybe even a little bit uh, sounds like crazy talk? And yet Paul... Paul says, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. There is a lot 
that Paul must obviously not mean. Right? Think of the context. The context, and everybody knows the context, is that he has done a complete 180 from persecuting the way, arresting Christians, to now being under arrest for preaching the way. How can somebody do both of those things and have a perfectly good conscience? How can somebody do both of those things and not be a sinner? Not be wrong? Obviously, he was wrong before or he is wrong now. Well, that's clearly not what Paul means, right? Paul knows that he's done a 180, and he knows that everybody else knows that he has done a 180. That's why he says, I have lived with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. What he is saying is, he, he remember, this is a continuation, really, of a defense that he began by going into the temple in the first place. He is still trying to convince the Jews, listen, I have not done all of these crazy things that you have heard or that you think that I have done. Yes, I've done a 180. There's no doubt about me being a Christian now as opposed to a persecutor of the Christians. But I, I'm not doing things like trying to overthrow the law of Moses, for example, or I, I'm not doing things to defile the temple. I, I'm not doing things to rile up trouble. As a matter of fact, I'm still to this day living with a good conscience. I didn't go out and then get scared and then get pressured into changing my position and then, you know, for the sake of realizing that I could start a, my own movement following after me, we could call it Pauline Christianity, right? I thought, hey, you know what? Here's an opportunity. And cynically, I took and I, I molded this new religion in my own image and, and I made something for myself. God's word and truth, forget it. I'm, I'm going for building my own kingdom. No, he's saying, look, I have a good conscience in what I've done. I haven't perverted God's truths. I haven't gone aside from the truth, whether out of fear or whether out of selfish motives or whether out of desire for money or whether out of a desire for power. I haven't compromised the truths of God because I thought that it would make me more popular or that it would allow me to reach, get more people to be on my side in things. I haven't betrayed the Israelite people and, and somehow decided, I'm for the Romans, the persecutors of God's holy chosen ones. No, I have a good conscience in what I've done. I have made this change, and it wasn't wrong. I'm, I'm utterly convinced that what I have done is right before God. 
So Paul is not saying that he has never changed his mind about something, right? Even something as important as whether Jesus is the Christ or not. Nor is Paul saying that he has never in his life made a mistake, even a major mistake. As a matter of fact, he seems to admit one mistake a couple of sentences later. It appears that he would not have spoken the way he did to the high priest if he had known his office, although... In this, I differ from Calvin, and I think that's worth noting, since I generally am always saying I agree with Calvin. Calvin thinks that, uh, that Paul absolutely knows who the high priest is, and that he's basically being sarcastic is the simplest way to describe his position. <laughs> Continuing to point out the hypocrisy of the high priest. I don't think so. I think that there had been a change and uh, I think Paul is being straightforward when he says, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Regardless, we know that Paul's made mistakes and we know he would not deny having made mistakes. But it's more than that, because mistakes are what we always do when we, uh, when we are trying to downplay our sin, right? There's a difference between a mistake and a sin. And what we want to euphemistically term a mistake is often actually a sin. In 1 Timothy 1, the Apostle Paul writes, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. So clearly, Paul does not mean that he doesn't make mistakes. Clearly, he doesn't mean that He's never been wrong. Clearly, he doesn't mean that he has not been in sin. It can't be that, he th that he's claiming that he is or has been or is now sinless. So what does it mean when he says, I have a perfectly good conscience before God? Well, part of what it means is that he was perfectly sincere in his beliefs. Both while a Jew, rejecting Christianity, and afterwards when he was converted on the road to Damascus. In other words, that he is not living hypocritically. 
He wasn't lying to them or pretending to be committed when he was seeking to persecute Christians. Earlier in chapter 22, he says to the crowd, uh, the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. What he's saying is, my actions lined up with my beliefs. My actions lined up with my beliefs. He, has not, he, he was not hiding his Christianity when he was going out to persecute the Christians. He was actually going out to persecute the Christians. He didn't hide anything. He lived his beliefs. The Apostle Paul also writes in Titus 1.15, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. As soon as we do something that our beliefs don't agree with, our conscience condemns us, and we no longer have a good conscience. The more we try to hide, the more our conscience condemns us. Paul was not trying to hide. and He was not going against his conscience, either in persecuting the Christians or in converting and then preaching the word. He was going with his conscience. As I've preached on the issue of having a good conscience a couple of times in the past few months, one of the things that I've mentioned is the question of why you want to have a good conscience. And the answer that's, I think, most obvious to us is because living with a bad conscience feels terrible. Right? Living with a bad conscience feels terrible. We feel guilt. We feel shame. We feel anger. It cuts us off from God and from other people. We feel defiled. Having a bad conscience means that you are convinced that you've got something between you and God. This is why to the pure, all things are pure. Because what you do, you do according to your conscience, and therefore, you don't feel anything between you and God. Now, that doesn't mean that you are right. Paul had a good conscience as he was persecuting Jesus Christ. Was he right or was he wrong? 
to have a good conscience. He, he was wrong, wasn't he? The opposite can also happen. You can have a terrible conscience, feel that there is something between you and God for something that is not wrong. But to you it is wrong if you do it against your conscience, something becomes between you and God, right? And so it's necessary for us to educate ourselves such that our consciences are accurately guided by the word of truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Having that bad conscience keeps you from God's presence. It makes worship difficult, if not impossible. You don't want to pray. Now, you might struggle to understand that feeling or to recognize it in yourself. Why would I not want to pray if I have a bad conscience? Well, you remember what that feeling when uh, you were caught red-handed reaching into the cookie jar? You don't want to look your mom in the eyes. You don't want to look your dad in the eyes. It's the same thing. And so we don't want to pray. Genesis 3.8, we read the same thing with Adam and Eve. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And it was their tradition, their habit, their glorious gift to be able to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day. But they had sinned in between. And so they had a bad conscience. And so what did they do? They hid themselves instead of walking with their father, God. Well, knowing that Adam and Eve started the tradition of everybody having bad consciences, (laughs) is it really possible that Paul that we can have a good conscience. When Peter says we have to have a good conscience, is there any hope for us to have a good conscience? I think this is part of why people hate Calvinism, because they think that it's impossible for there to be any relief under total depravity, right? Well, if that's, if that was, if Calvinism was only one point, then yeah, that, (laughs) that would be bad and there wouldn't be any relief. But Christianity, the faith that is faithfully described in part by those five points that are often attributed to Calvin, 
often attributed to Paul, less often attributed to Jesus. They have more than just that one truth, that one point. It is possible for us to have a good conscience. Paul can rightly claim to have a good conscience because he is dependent on the grace of God. The Jewish leaders cannot understand how Paul can claim to have lived with a good conscience. But now that he has faith in Christ, he has a true mediator who removes the barriers between God and man. Again, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. In other words, he's again claiming that he has a, a, a good conscience, right? His conscience is testifying what though? That in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. In the grace of God, Paul conducted himself towards all the people and especially to the Corinthian church. Now, there are all kinds of people who are deceived and misled and think they are good. But Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. And yet, you can have a good conscience. You can have a good conscience. Not by keeping some set of rules like the Pharisees did. The only way that the Pharisees could have a good conscience under the law was to fully keep the law. And in that context, of course, there is nothing to do but strike somebody who claims to have a good conscience. How dare you? I've spent my whole life trying to keep these rules. First Timothy 4, again the Apostle Paul, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Now that's about what we're about to do with these elements. We are going to sanctify them, set them apart, 
by the word of God and prayer. And they will be made holy. Likewise, we can be made holy. Though we have sin, we will not allow our consciences to be seared with a branding iron so that we no longer feel anything from them. Certainly somebody who has no more feeling in their conscience might claim, oh yeah, I've got a clear conscience. I don't feel any pangs or compunction in my conscience. But that's not the solution that Paul has in the gospel for us. The solution that Paul has in the gospel for us is not, you will live a perfectly holy and sinless life, nor is it, it doesn't matter what you do anymore, your conscience. No, he says, don't be seared in your conscience. It does matter what you do. So what is his solution? How can he stand before them and say, I have a clean conscience? Well, two things. One, that he is not doing what he does hypocritically. He's not, he's not advocating that gambling be outlawed and then going to casinos on the weekend, right? But much more importantly than that, he is relying on the grace of God for his strength, for his holiness, for his forgiveness. And that's what he is proclaiming to the Jews. And that's what got them so angry. And that is often what makes us so angry. We are tempted to set up sets of rules that are able to be followed by us, but that ultimately do not lead to holiness. Ultimately, they lead to searing our consciences. We set up what it means to be good according to the laws of man. Paul is farther than any of us from saying that. Paul is saying, I am the foremost of sinners. I have a perfectly good conscience before God to this day. Why? Because he has been washed. He has been washed by the blood of the Lamb. 
And so his conscience, in spite of his sins, in spite of his mistakes, in spite of persecuting Jesus himself in the persecution of his church, Paul can stand and honestly say, I have a good conscience. I am seeking to do what is right. And God in his grace has forgiven me. And that's the declaration of this meal that we're about to celebrate. That there is forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. There's two ways of coming to this meal. One is to come knowing that you're a sinner, confessing your sin, and having your heart and your conscience made new. The other is coming and saying, I am righteous, I don't really need Jesus Christ, and searing your conscience. Those are really the only two ways of coming to this meal. So now let's celebrate it together. This is what Paul writes to that same church, that church in Corinth, in the same letter, 1 Corinthians. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. 
The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. What a beautiful tenderness Paul has for the church there and a concern for their welfare. And a change is obviously made at that point in the church in Corinth and their practice of the Lord's Supper. This is why we don't call the potluck after church the Lord's Supper, but we have the Lord's Supper as part of the worship service. It's why we don't call it the Lord's Supper. Anytime people get together who are Christians and and have a meal with one another, he says, no, no, listen. Remember, the point of this meal is not so that you can get full. There's a much deeper point to this meal, and it's a much more formal event. But formal isn't the point, right? The point is that there's actual danger with this meal. And there is actual work that we have to do in preparation besides showing up and eating. This is why we fence the table, which is to say we we put a fence around it with words. We say, look, there's people who are supposed to come in inside that fence and who are supposed to partake in this supper, and there's people who are supposed to stay outside. If you're supposed to take it, you better take it. If you're not supposed to take it, you better not take it. If you have faith, you ought to be partaking in this supper, not neglecting it, not setting it to the side. It's a commandment of Jesus Christ. Not allowing yourself to continue in sin and in a bad conscience and therefore refusing to partake, but confessing your sin, having a clean conscience, and coming and partaking of the body and the blood of Christ. And so we celebrate open communion in that we don't say, hey, this is just for our church. No. Any Christian who is a Bible-believing member of a faithful church is welcome, and we bid you come. But we also bid every one of you to examine yourself. Even as Paul says, it shouldn't be for division but it should be for unity in the church. Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Gracious God, you have been kind in providing this meal to us in the person of Jesus Christ, your only Son, our Lord and Savior, who came to earth and died so that we might receive forgiveness of sins. And so, Heavenly Father, we praise you and give you thanks. We ask that each of us here would celebrate this meal with a clear conscience, knowing that it is only by the blood of Jesus Christ that we may enter into your presence 
It is only by faith in Him that we may receive forgiveness. It is only by the work that He has done that we are dressed in righteousness. So we thank You. And we pray that You would help us now, Father, by the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse our consciences. We ask these things in His precious name. Amen.